0: Brothers and sisters, let us now go before the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing for our time as we go before him to hear his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, who has spoken to the prophets, but has now spoken to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask that as we go to your word, that you would bless us, that you would give us hearts that are open to receive your word with joy. Give us ears that are willing to hear your word and to receive it, and that we would be people that are conformed more and more to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please be with this, savior, with this uh, uh, weak vessel of yours, as he now seeks to do that which no one is sufficient to do. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I ask that you take your copy of Scripture, if you have one, and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3 will be our sermon. text is going to be verses 14 through 19 Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 this is a prayer um, of uh, Paul for the church of Ephesus if you notice that our hymns were centered around the church for all the saints and the church is one foundation and uh, we're going to learn about um, this wonderful prayer Paul prays on behalf of the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Brothers and sisters, hear now the words of the living God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, authoritative, and infallible word, may he be pleased to write it upon our heart. Well, the title of my sermon this evening is Prayer on the Borderline. Now, one of the professors I had the privilege of stuttering, stuttering, uh, studying, uh, no pun intended, uh, studying under while in seminary is, was Dr. Craig Troxell, a name that might be familiar to you. Oh, well, besides being the gifted professor that he is, Dr. Troxell cares about equipping aspiring pastors like myself for the ministry. And one of the classes I had the opportunity to take with him was called Pastoral Ministry Seminar. Now, hopefully you guys don't tell any of my professors here. I mean, if they come, but that was one of my favorite classes. Just don't, don't tell them that. <laughs> but it was one of my favorite classes, not because it was just filled with theological content, though it certainly provided plenty of it. Instead, being an experienced pastor, Dr. Troxell describe the realities of the ministry, its ups and downs, triumphs and defeats, and everything else in between. And on the first day of that class, as we were sitting at our desks waiting to begin, Dr. Troxell walked in, silently, ordered his notes, and began the class by saying something which I hope, by God's grace, never to forget. He opened the lecture by saying, Brothers, if you have no prayer, you have no ministry. Brothers, if you have no prayer, you have no ministry. That hit me like a ton of bricks. In other words, for a gospel minister to be effective, he must commune daily with the Lord. That's the only way he'll make it in the ministry And in this world, not only that, but he almost also must pray for those under his care who sometimes for various reasons can't or won't even pray for themselves. And this truth applies to all Christians. Why? Because prayer is a means of grace. It's how we grow not only in grace, but in love toward God and his people. And at times I like to think that the Apostle Paul listened to Dr. Troxell's advice. Obviously, I'm kidding. Dr. Troxell listened to Paul because in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul asks one thing from the Lord that we as God's people would realize just how much the Lord Jesus loves us. It's that simple. Though we live in a culture and in a society right now that makes us believe that God can't love us, As you read Paul's prayer in our passage, you won't only be hearing someone taking their ministry seriously in prayer. You'll also be hearing God's heart for you. And if you're taking notes, so there's a simple outline for you. I have three points, like the good Presbyterian that I am. Three points. Point number one, prayer for God's family. Point number two, strength, prayer for strength. And point number three, prayer for comprehension. With that, let us begin with our first point, prayer for God's family. Paul begins verse 14 by saying, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. With this phrase, Paul signals to us that he's not only about to reveal the content of his prayer, but also the posture. But first, notice how incredible this statement is, especially coming from someone like Paul. I mean, remember, he's one of Christ's apostles who appeared to him in resurrected glory on the Damascus Road. Jesus directly called Paul to proclaim the gospel across the known world at that time. And his gospel, given to him by Jesus, is still being proclaimed around the world 2,000 years later. Now, while such a thing would undoubtedly Cause anyone to puff up with pride, privilege, and conceit, it produced the opposite effect in Paul. How do we know this? Well, we know this because during the first century, Jews typically prayed while standing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I think we should make it mandatory to pray while standing. I think it will keep us from falling asleep, especially right now. (laughs) Reading Paul's words should shock us because... Notice his posture. He bows his knees. Reading Paul's words should shock us because, though not uncommon, hardly anyone did that. It would be like if our dear brother here got on his knees during the pastoral prayer. As God's chosen, frozen chosen, we'd probably think, uh, what are you doing? We'd like, what's, what's going on? That's kind of strange. Why is he getting on his knees? But not so with Paul. He became humble before the Lord because to bow one's knees was a sign of submission. The imagery Paul uses in this verse is of one who pays homage or respect to a conqueror, king, or other, or other kind of ruler. In other words, Paul recognizes the creature-creator distinction. He realizes who he is before this God. And as we'll see in a moment, this makes sense given how Paul will go on to mention God's glory. You remember what would happen to those who encountered God's glory, right? They were utterly, utterly undone. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. What did he say? Woe is me! As he encountered God's glory, they would say... And so, of course, Paul would bow his knees before the glorious God. And not only that, but bowing also symbolized dependence, as if Paul were begging the Lord. And so here we have a man who knows that what he's about to ask is so far beyond man's ability to perform that it can only be a work of grace. That's why Paul bows his knees he realizes how utterly dependent his request is upon the Lord since he knows how hard and callous man's heart is toward God, especially his love. And all prayer is just that, isn't it? A recognition that we're needy creatures dependent upon our Creator for everything. The distance between you as a fallen sinful creature, and as God, the holy, incomprehensible creator, is so great that he isn't obligated to listen to you. But the amazing thing, brothers and sisters, is that God delights in hearing your prayers. Not just hearing them, delights in hearing them. And think of it this way. Here we are on this speck of dust called earth flying through this massive universe. And yet, when we pray, whether as a church, with our families, or alone in the private privacy of our own home, to think that the one on heaven's throne would bend his ear to listen intently to your prayers. And not just that, answer them. And so, let me encourage you with this this evening. Beloved, that you continue to seek the Lord in prayer. Don't give up. God will answer one way or another. Whatever it is, his ear is always open to your prayers. Why does he do this? It's because you're his precious child. God has adopted you into his family and receives you as his child. And this makes sense given who Paul bows before. Notice in our text, the father. And once Paul mentions the Father, we're back at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 where he describes how both Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ and have access to the Father by the Spirit. Why? Because as Paul writes there in Ephesians 2, we're all fellow citizens with the saints, and here's the language, and members of the household of God. Paul uses familial language, Which is why he says of the Father in verse 15 of our text, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now for clarity's sake, this phrase from every family doesn't refer to every family in existence or that ever is, has existed, like every family unit. Instead, it relates to God's whole family made up of Jews and Gentiles who are called and redeemed by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, of which God is their Father. To prove, to further prove this point, notice how at the end of verse 15, Paul says how the Father has named this family. Now, the phrase is named functions, functions much like our last names. If you wanted to tell someone your name in the ancient world, you would say something like, I'm son of, or daughter of so-and-so. You would say your first name followed by son of so-and-so or daughter of so-and-so. So So for example, my name is Rudy and my last name is Manrique, which means rich man. So I'm Rudy, the son of a rich man, which definitely isn't true if you saw my bank account. (laughs) And it definitely isn't true since I live in California. (laughs) But do you know what is true? Do you know what is true? Just like in the opening chapters of Genesis, where God exercised his royal kingship by naming things, Paul's point is that now God names you as his child. You're now so-and-so, son of God, daughter of God, so-and-so, daughter of God. That's now your identity. You're now a child of God who's been adopted into his family. Now, that may be difficult for some of you to hear because you may have had parents or family that have abandoned you. You may not even know your family. You may not have any family because they've all passed away. You may be alone because your family is in another state or in another country. Your birth certificate may have a particular last name from a father you may have never known. But beloved... Remember what David said in Psalm 27:10 Though my father and mother forsake me the Lord will receive The Lord as it were has stamped his last name on you and has adopted you on into his family the Lord of the universe is now your father but it doesn't end there take a look around you these are your brothers and sisters. Not only has God united you to his son by the Holy Spirit, but the Father has also united you to one another. And not only that, every person, whatever their ethnicity or background, there's no distinction in God's church. If they trust in the Lord Jesus by believing the true gospel, they're all a part of God's family and ha- along with us and have him as their father. Why? Because, as Paul later writes in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so, having identified who Paul is praying for, next he reveals what he's praying for. And this leads to our second point, Prayer for strength. Now, notice how verses 16 through 19 consists of two prayer requests. The first, described in verses 16 through 17, is a prayer for God to strengthen his people. The reason Paul says he bows before the Father is so that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now first, notice the words, to be strengthened. When we hear those words, we typically think of someone who's physically strong or with the, with the ability to lift a lot of weight. Definitely not someone like me. But this doesn't refer to physical strength, like Samson, who became physically strong when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Instead, this describes the internal strength that God gives to you. We know this because Paul prays that this strengthening would happen in your inner being. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, before answering that question, notice how or the means this strength comes to believers. Paul prays that God would strengthen you with power through his spirit. In the New Testament, power is often Associated or connected with the Holy Spirit. For example, Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And that's the key because it's this same resurrection power that Paul has in mind because in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he prayed that we'd know what is the immeasurable greatness of his. Power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And so Paul prays that God would strengthen you with this same resurrection power in your inner being. Why does he want this? Why does he want God to answer this? It's because Paul knows the certainty of one thing in this life, and it's not just taxes. He knows you and I are eventually going to die. We understand what Paul meant by inner being because he uses this same phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, also in Romans 7. There Paul writes, Though our outer self is wasting away our inner self, our inner being, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an an weight, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When Paul saw the scars and bruises from the constant beatings he endured, I remember he's a prisoner. This is a prison epistle. He's in jail writing this. When Paul saw the scars and bruises from the constant beatings he endured, when the Romans chained him up for preaching Christ, or when he referred to himself as the aged, as he does in first and second Timothy, Paul understood well that his outer man was wasting away. And the same is true of you. You or a loved one may be suffering from a dreadful disease or a crippling depression, maybe death has taken has taken a loved one from you. Or maybe you just can't even move around as you once did. Time has caught up with you. All this proves that your outer self is wasting away since creation is subject to this present evil age because of sin. But not you, beloved. Not you. You have a different fate that of this world everything around you may be wasting away even your body but not what's begun in you by the triune god you have a different fate than that of this world how it's because even now within your heart you have begun by the spirit the inaugurated new creation because where you see the spirit operating there's new creation how can you be assured of this Well, notice in verse 15 how Paul says this power is according to the riches of his glory, the end goal. What does he mean by this? Well, the source of this power comes from heaven where Christ even now is seated in heavenly places, interceding on your behalf and soon because of God's preserving grace, You too will be with him in consummated glory because Christ is dwelling in you. As Paul says of us elsewhere in Colossians chapter 2 To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But you may still doubt because you still see very little progress in your inner being you might think none of what you're saying is true because you don't know how dark and sinful my heart is if i can just if you can pierce just a little bit behind the curtain of my heart you would be shocked my inner being is a mess Beloved, that may be true. But notice what Paul prays for in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a glorious statement. Beloved, you may be ashamed of your heart, but Christ isn't. He's chosen it as his home because the word to dwell refers to settling down in a particular place Indefinitely, we have a saying that gets at the heart of this word. There's no place like home, or home is where the heart is. Now, a few years ago, a number of years ago, my mother, and my father were divorced. It was a pretty bad divorce. Um, actually, left my mom homeless and living in a van. Uh, but a few uh few years ago. Um, She had bought this house, this little house, uh, with the money uh, from the settlement. And it was all she could afford. And believe me when I tell you that this house that she bought was a complete wreck. Before my mom bought it, people had vandalized it. There were massive holes in the walls, graffiti, trash everywhere, broken windows, the AC didn't work. You name it, this house was in shambles. But do you know what my mom did? Little by little, day by day. She would fix or paint a wall here, clean this particular part of the house until the house was not only restored but also to her liking. Why does she do that? It's because that's where she lives, plus that's all she had to work with. That's her home. That's where she lives. And beloved, the same is true when Christ first came into your heart. He found the state of your heart in complete disarray, full of sin and corruption with all your insecurities, sadness and anxieties. In other words, when Christ made his dwelling in your heart, he knew just how broken you were. And yet, what does he still continue to do? He takes up residence in your heart, and little by little, day by day, by His Spirit's power, He begins to shape your heart according to His likeness, and although it is a slow and painful process, I am sure of this, as Paul says, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, don't look at the state of your heart. Instead, look to the one dwelling in your heart through the eyes of faith, whose love for you is beyond comp- comprehension, which is Paul's second request in our third point. He's praying that we have, he's praying for comprehension. Now, second, Paul's second request found in verses 18 through 19 is that we would simply understand one virtue that will last forever love. And in verse 18, Paul begins by requesting that we would have strength to comprehend this love. Notice how Paul uses the word strength again. However, this isn't the same word that he used in verse 16. Instead, this word means to have the capability to understand something so as to make it your own. But not only that, but Paul, and not only that, Paul also prays that the that we would, uh, Paul also uses the word to comprehend, which also gets at the idea of processing information to its fullest extent. This is why Paul prays that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith, because faith is more than just adhering to mere propositional truth claims. No faith consists of knowledge, assent, but most of all trust. In other words. Paul is praying that you would embrace and comprehend this love as the basis of your assurance. It's what he's praying that you would be rooted and grounded in. Why? Because Paul knows how often everything in this world from this from sin to the devil wants to rob you of your assurance. Beloved, when life's trials come your way, when you fall along the way to glory because of your sin, or when the doctor gives you a negative report, what is it that's going to make you stand? Yourself? No way! No, it must be something outside of you, which is the very thing Paul is praying that you comprehend and embrace. As we'll see in a moment, But this love isn't to be comprehended solely on an individual basis. We know this because Paul prays that we would comprehend this love with one another. Together, as he says, with all the saints. And this love is demonstrated by your love for one another. We know that Christ loves us, not only by uniting us to himself, but by the mere fact that he's joined us to one another. I may be somewhat a member at Grace Presbyterian Church, but we also share a bond because of the Spirit. But what is it that Paul wants God's people to comprehend? We're still trying to answer that question. Well, notice how Paul waits to reveal the source of this love by first describing its dimensions. All this talk about understanding and grasping and embracing by faith, it's as if Paul is creating anticipation within us. If Paul's letter was a musical score, the music is about to crescendo. Paul prays that we'd comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of this love. Who can possibly love us that much? in terms of its breadth, whose love flows out from, like the river from Mount Zion to all nations, even to the point of reaching you here in Redlands, California of all places, whose love in terms of its length removes your sins as far as the east is from the west, in terms of its height, whose love for you is as high as the heavens are above the earth and regarding its depth, whose love for you as we celebrate Christmas, would leave heaven's glory, descend to this sin-cursed world, and take the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Whose love is this that can make Paul say the following, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, ironically, Paul is praying for you to comprehend what you'll never be able to comprehend. That's the point of his prayer. A a love that is so deep that it surpasses knowledge as he writes. This love doesn't just exceed our expectations. It exceeds and goes far beyond those expectations. Paul wants you to be grounded, rooted and grounded in Christ's love for you, the assurance of your salvation, and in case you haven't noticed, I like to point something out about our sermon passage. Have you noticed how Paul isn't praying for your your love for Christ to grow? It's rather interesting, right? Paul doesn't pray, Paul doesn't go, God, why don't you cause these sinful Ephesians to love you? won't you Why don't you cause them to have enough good works to demonstrate how much they love you? It's quite the opposite, isn't it? Instead, he's praying that you would know Christ's love for you. It's not as if Paul doesn't want our love for God to grow. He certainly does. But Paul knows that's not how it works, no pun intended. He knows that when sinners understand God's love for them, they'll want to love and serve him willingly. As one theologian said long ago, to be loved is to love. To be loved is to love. And as we conclude, you might still be wondering, why is the title of this sermon Prayer on the Borderline? I mean, we haven't even mentioned that just at the beginning, let alone talked about it. Prayer on the Borderlines, what could I possibly mean by that? Well, to some extent, we've have been alluding to it all along. You see, beloved, you live within two overlapping ages. This present evil age, full of sin, decay, and corruption, which we're all too familiar with, right? And as believers, we long for something more, don't we? But at the same time, by God's grace, you live simultaneously within another age, the age to come which has broken into this present evil age. Though not yet fully consummated, this age to come is the complete opposite of this present evil age. It's one full of joy, peace, joy, and everlasting fellowship with our triune God. But you might be asking, where is this age to come that you're saying has already broken into this present evil age when all I've ever experienced is the latter? I mean, take a look around. Look at the state of our world. You must be delusional, Rudy. But I'll tell you where you can find this age to come. I'm looking right at it. It's you. The church. While it may not look like it, you as the church are the inaugurated, new creation temple that's filled with God's glory. Think about that. God's glory resides here and nowhere else. Because within each one of you, within your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the resurrection power of Christ working within you, changing and conforming you into the new man christ's likeness only we as the church can claim that brothers and sisters you're standing on the borderline between those two ages you're think of it this way you're that close to the consummated new creation and this prayer on your behalf is not only for your perseverance as you live within the tension or on the border of these two ages, but that we as the church would realize what we are and how much God loves us. And being rooted and grounded in this love, we would go out into this present evil age to be salt and light. Oh, beloved, Paul's prayer is for you to realize what's been done for you and being done in you no eye has seen nor ear has heard, what god has prepared for those who love him and that's why paul ends this wonderful chapter by praising the one who will see you to through to the other side of that border and into his consummated new creation which we're now though only in part experiencing notice the connection he makes with glory and the church and here we'll end with this. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All glory, honor, and praise be to our triune God. You bow your hearts in prayer with me. Almighty God, graciously grant that your word, which we have heard, may be inscribed inwardly on our hearts as we receive your word meekly with pure affection. May our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost, wandering, and confused into the way of truth. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.